Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. This episode is a little different than my other episodes as it's available for ASHA CEUs through Tassel Continuing Education. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs, then stay on until the very end because that is where I provide information on how to register for automatic ASHA reporting. So we're going to start with introductions and backgrounds. We're going to talk about sensory processing or sensory integration and what that is. We'll talk about why it's important to address in your therapy sessions, how to identify sensory differences in neurodiverse children, how to address sensory needs in a variety of ways, and discuss the ways to target sensory regulation with limited resources, because I know a lot of us are dealing with that in our therapy settings. And then we'll wrap up with a live Q&A, but feel free to put your questions in the Q&A or the chat throughout, and I will make sure to point Jessie to those so she can answer them for you. So if you're not familiar, I am Benita Livback. I am passionate about AAC, assistive technology and literacy. And that's why I invite people on to the Speechy Side Up podcast so that you guys can learn about other subjects as well. And I'm a new mom to an almost nine month old daughter now, which is just crazy. And Jesse, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Jesse. I'm an SLP. I own a private practice in Los Angeles and I create, started creating online courses for therapists working with autistic children just out of a need that I felt that there was. So yeah, how it all started, I wrote an article for ASHA. It was, gosh, a couple of years ago. And after that article came out, I started getting emails from people all over saying, do you have any resources? Do you know what else I could do to learn more about this and kind of your approach and I was like, wow, we really need more resources um, for, for helping our autistic children. So that's where it all came in. And I guess I can add that I'm a mom to three <laughs> crazy little boys, five and under. You are the boy club mom. <laughs> yep. I'll have awesome. another, it will be a boy. And then another, <laughs> it will be a boy. <laughs> awesome. Now we got to talk about our financial disclosures really quick. So I have financial relevant financial relationships to disclose. I'm owner of Speechy Side Up LLC and Tassel Learning LLC, and I receive royalties from the Lou Knows What to Do book series. And um, in terms of non-financial relationships, I'm a member of ASHA Special Interest Group 12. And how about you, Jesse? Um, I own Pediatric Therapy Playhouse, um, this course Inside Out, which I'm sure I'll be referencing, and I will be compensated for doing this webinar. All right. And then by the end of this pod course today, we hope that you'll be able to define sensory processing or sensory integration, explain the importance of it in therapy, identify three ways to help kids with uh, sensory differences in a neurodiversity affirming way. Describe three ways that you can address the sensory needs of your students and explain three ways to target sensory regulation with limited access to therapy equipment. So Jesse, we'll start off with an explanation of sensory integration. Like, what is it? I wonder if this is the old PowerPoint, by the way, because I had added some. Oh, I put oh. it as <laughs> surprise. <laughs> um, yeah, there's one more on there, right? Okay. Yeah, so basically it's just organizing all of the sensations that are around you in your body and being able to use them. 
So it's not only things that are in our environment, but it's also things within our own body. Um, and I guess I should talk a little bit more about this specifically, which is I think there's can be somewhat of a misconception between like what is sensory processing versus integration. And I think the main thing to know is that SLPs can only do what we call sensory integration therapy if you are trained in it, um, which is like a certificate training, uh, which is something that I've done. But that doesn't mean that you can't use sensory strategies and environmental modifications and things that we're gonna be talking about today. But I do think it's important that we don't go out and say, oh, we're gonna be doing sensory integration therapy um, because that wouldn't be reflective of what we actually do in our sessions. But yeah, it's been, for me, very, very transformative and a lot of fun to be able to learn this and integrate it into sessions. I bet. So I did see that sensory integration like is registered. It's a particular program. Yeah. So this is by Ayers who's up there and she's really the woman that conducted most of the research. So there are certificate programs that you can do that are super intense and lots of coursework. <laughs> very I didn't know what I was signing up for, honestly, when I did it. And I was um, just, it was like going back and being in grad school again. <laughs> so it was awesome. Wow. But, um, you know, for me, I, my first job ever in the field, I was an SLPA. So I was an assistant and I was trained in floor time. And has anyone been trained in floor time? I'm curious. Um, you could put it in the chat box. So obviously in floor time, sensory regulation is a really key part and one of the foundational skills of working with kids through a floor time approach. Yeah, we got some yeses. I figured there would be some. So I really learned that from the very beginning of my you know, career, how important it was to be able to work on sensory processing. And I'll tell you about this kid because anytime I think back to my beginning of my career, I think of this kid. There was this three-year-old boy that I used to see. He was non-speaking and we had three hour sessions. Okay. That's like unheard of, but that's just how the floor time funding worked at here at the time. So I had three hour sessions with him. And this was a kid that was just people found to be so challenging. So it was so hard to engage him. And he'd kind of gotten passed around in this huge clinic from therapist to therapist so they gave him to me, this person with zero experience. I mean, I was just trained in floor time <laughs> and it took so much just experience, uh, experimenting to see what really worked for him. So it's funny because I figured out how to engage him, which was I would let him stand up on my therapy table. We play music and we dance and he'd jump off into my arms. So it was time for me to submit a tape and all the clinical supervisors would review it. So that was just something every therapist went through. This was like a really big clinic. There were probably 50 therapists and lots of different disciplines. So I took this video of him dancing, jumping off the table into my arms. He was so engaged and I was so excited to show these supervisors like, look how great he's doing. Oh my gosh. It's awesome. I've never seen him like this before. And, um, I submit it. And then what do I hear back from them? Why would you let him stand on the table and jump into your arms? Like that's so dangerous. That's such a liability for our clinic. 
<laughs> oh my God. You know, so then I had to have a supervisor come in and just show me more safe ways that we could do the same activity. So it's kind of funny, but, um, you know, what I learned is that it's just like these conventional sit at the table type of approaches are not what a lot of our kids need. It's just not going to work. And not that it's just a waste of our time, but it's just one of those things where when we're integrating more sensory experiences into our sessions, especially for kids who have these sensory differences, we're going to get more out of them in the session and they're going to get more out of the session, you know, and it's as simple as that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. I feel like we all have stories that we can look back on and think like, oh, what were we doing? Or I could have done that better. And when you know better, you do better. But um, that I'm glad that you were able to get trained in the floor time. That's awesome. Now, Ayers, Ayers, right? What is her background or his background? She's an OT. An OT. Okay. Um, And if people are interested in getting trained in that program, where can they go? Yeah, there is a program through University of Southern California. Okay. It is like going back to grad school pretty much then. Yeah. And it's funny (laughs) because I just assumed that OTs graduate with that training, but it's not the case. It's just like you or I don't graduate being able to do like SOS feeding therapy. That's something you have to go and you have to get an additional training in, you know? So, um, hard for SLPs to be in that course because it's probably 99% OTs and you just, we don't have the background, you know? So that was super fun getting to learn the whole anatomy and of the sensory system. Yeah, I bet. So can you explain this statement? Cause I'm sure you touched on it, but can you just summarize it again in case anybody was wondering? So yeah, from that, we, body yeah that when we are integrating different sensory experiences, we have things that come from ourselves internally and then things that come externally. So for instance, if you're touching a bumpy wall, you are, that is something that's coming from the outside world and you are touching it and it's getting relayed into your sensory receptors and you're registering it in your body. Whereas you feeling like you are hungry or you have to go to the bathroom, that is a sensation that is originating from within your body, but it's also being processed as sensory input. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. That was helpful. Awesome. Okay. So why should SLPs learn about sensory processing? Yeah. One of the I'd always wondered kind of what percentage this was, but then in my coursework, I learned that basically up to 95% of autistic adults report differences in their sensory processing. So in a world where so many of us are working with autistic children, that um, statistic was in the ASHA leader maybe a, a couple months ago. I thought that was really interesting, which basically said that 92% of school-based SLPs said that they have autistic kids on their caseload. So I think it's pretty simple that if we are seeing that many autistic children in our work, and then that grade of a percentage of our kids have sensory differences, it's so important for us to understand it, you know? And then, I mean, the bottom line, I guess you could say, or most important thing is that So when we are regulated, that's when we can learn. And if we're not regulated, then we're not using our brain in the most efficient way possible. You know, I think about when I was driving to my office today, I was thinking about 
this time in grad school. We are in our second year and we are walking into one of our final exams. And I see one of my closest friends sitting in the hall with her hand, her head on her hand and she's on the phone and she's crying. So then I'm waiting for her to get off the phone. She stands up and says, my boyfriend just broke up with me. And I'm like, okay, what person in their right mind would break up with this person that they've loved for years, right? As they're walking into a final exam, right? That's crazy. That's gotta be one of the most emotionally dysregulating things that could happen to you, right? So the problem is that, And if you guys have read the whole brain child, that book, they talk about, you know, the downstairs brain and the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain is where we make these automatic reflexive decisions like fight or flight. Whereas the upstairs brain is where we can access our logical thinking brain. So what happens when something like that happens, like this poor girl gets broken up with is all of a sudden her brain just is goes into fight or flight mode because she's so disturbed by what's happened that you cannot even access the upstairs thinking part of your brain. So what's very interesting, and you'll see this Vanita as Liv gets older, (laughs) is that you can see it in toddler development, especially when kids have these responses that are so automatic and reflexive. It's like, you don't give them what they want. They throw their body on the floor. Right. So it's like, that was not a cognitive decision. I think it'd be really funny to embarrass mom in the middle of target. If I throw my body on the ground and I start screaming because she won't buy me these crackers, you know, that is not what goes through the head of a two-year-old. What happens is you say, no, their body drops to the ground. It's this automatic reflexive response. And then what happens even worse is you can't have any logical conversation. You can't say, okay, mommy said I already have these in the diaper bag or these are in the car or I just bought a Costco size goldfish. Why would I buy more right now? All of that is turned off in that moment because um, they're just in their downstairs brain. So it's really important for us as SLPs, our work is happens in that upstairs brain. We need to get kids be able to think logically and being able to communicate with us and all of this higher level abstract thinking. And those skills are just not going to be accessible if we don't have a child who is regulated. So interesting. And I bought that book. I mean, I've been meaning to start reading it, but of course, like mom life, there's a lot going on, but I'm gonna have to make that a priority. I'm curious, has anybody else read the whole brain child yet? Go ahead and drop it in the chat. Have you read it once or more than once? Is it like one of those that like is a nice reminder for parents? Um, I, I have not read it more than once, but I do. I read on my phone, which some people think is crazy, but I highlight and then I go back to things all the time. Um, so when you highlight things on a Kindle app, then you can email a PDF of everything you've highlighted to yourself. So now if I want to reference a book or get something I'll just go into my email. I've got all my books there and all my notes. I did not know that. I learned something new today. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. That's really cool. So we're going to talk about the different strategies, right? That can be used for helping children regulate. Yeah. And I think we were going to touch on or try to touch on, um, yeah, neurodiversity. Okay. Awesome. So, um, 
Yeah. What is the best way to help kids who have sensory differences in a neurodiversity affirming way? Yeah, I think um, it's really cool with just how things happen on social media, because I think this neurodiversity movement has become so strong because of all of our access to social media, which is awesome. But I think before the last year, and some people still aren't really up to date with it either, you know, um, but basically what neurodiversity is, is this natural variation of human minds. And it's this infinite variations of what might be happening within our brain. And it's, it's like I said, a naturally occurring variation. So the point, and there's some great stuff. I think I want to say Dr. Nick Walker, I'll have to double check that, but, um, talking about how, you know, what we consider normal quote unquote brain functioning is just a social construct that we've created, you know, and neurodiversity is something that's very naturally occurring. It's something valuable and it's something that should be embraced and celebrated, not something that people should be ashamed of. So it's really cool. I think that we're heading in this direction as a profession. I mean, there's still a, a long ways to go, but, um, you know, I think one of the coolest things about this is, and you guys might follow her, um, Rachel Dorsey is an autistic SLP and we've connected on social media and, um, you know, I was my mind was blown when I first learned about this identity first versus person first language. Um, when I basically found out that I think the stat I read was 97% of autistic adults prefer identity first language, which is autistic person, which is why I use it versus person with autism, which is something that is drilled into our heads in grad school is using person first language. Um, so, you know, within the neurodiversity movement, it's, we don't need to be ashamed of our autism. We are autistic people. This is a valuable part of who we are. And that's not something that you can take away from us. Um, so Rachel Dorsey said something that I thought was really powerful, which was she said that there's no neurotypical child under the autism. You know, so we don't want parents coming to us going, if I can just peel these layers back and my kid, there's going to be a neurotypical normal quote child under there, you know? And the problem is that when parents have this perception or idea in their head, then it affects them in so many ways, but not only that, but obviously affects how they're raising this child. So the difference is that if we are firsthand starting these conversations with parents about this is a, a natural variation of human mind. And this isn't something to be ashamed of. This is something to be valued um, in explaining, you know, autism, even to parents, which is a, a totally different conversation. But we can help parents to shape their beliefs and their perceptions of their child. And what that does is help the child build more positive um, self-concept and self-esteem and it does so much. So, um, I can give you a link to this Vanita, but Rachel and I did an ASHA podcast episode together where we talked about this. And I mean, I learned so much every time I talked to her, but that conversation, like I just took so much away from that. So I would highly recommend listening to that. 
Yeah, I'll definitely get that link from you and I'll post it in the like tassel um, page for this course. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So I think one of the, the easiest, and maybe it's not easy if you're not used to doing it, but it can become easy. One of the easiest things that we can start to do is explain a child's sensory differences in a way that makes sense to parents or makes sense to teachers or other professionals, right? Because I think it's such an abstract concept that sometimes it's hard for parents to truly understand what their child is experiencing. But if we're able to very simply explain to parents, you know, this is how your child is experiencing the world, all of a sudden the behavior that they see makes so much sense to them, you know, and it could be as simple as, um, say you have a child with auditory hypersensitivity. So that means that when they are experiencing sounds, they are experiencing them at a greater rate or volume than maybe you or I would. So saying to a parent, you know, imagine if every time you heard the toilet flush, it was like you were standing behind an airplane taking off, you know, and just giving them some kind of personal experience they've had to draw on can make such a big difference. Um, even, I guess I could say you have to know your crowd. Cause sometimes if I'm training, like someone I'm in California. So Coachella, for example, is a really big, like outdoor concert event here. You guys know what that is. I feel like people do. Is that just a California thing, but it's a big music festival basically. Um, Taylor knows. <laughs> so imagine going to Coachella and being there all the time. It's like, it is not one of those places that you want to go and then stay there. It's so overstimulating. It's loud. It's hot, sticky, uh, people everywhere. So basically it's overstimulating in every sense. And it's just a place where all you want, maybe like Disneyland's a better example. All you want after you've spent a day at Disneyland is to go home and have a glass of wine. You do not want you're like, why did I buy that two day park pass? I'm done with this place. <laughs> right. So it's the same thing It's just telling parents things that maybe they've experienced in their lives that they can relate to and trying to draw on those um, specific experiences. So this book um, by Mona De La Hook is awesome um, called Beyond Behaviors. And one of the things that she talks about is how we need to teach kids to appreciate these signals from their bodies as valuable information, not something to be ashamed of. So if there's a kid who is in class and you see them moving around, we can say, hey, it looks like you want to move around a little. Would you rather go stand in the back of the class or would you rather go take a walk around the playground, whatever. That's probably not the age of the kid that would take a walk on their own and then come back. Um, but it's just, it's okay. And we don't need to, we don't want to teach kids that they have to sit in their seat and suppress these natural feelings that they're having. It's okay. And it's not something to be ashamed of. Um, and that goes into the last point there, which is model acceptance to respect human variations. Um, and we just can do that ourselves by how um, we, we act ourselves and model that. 
That's really interesting. I feel like we do have a long way to go, especially in like classroom management styles. Yeah. I feel like, go ahead. One of the biggest things is that it's almost swimming upstream in a way because we have all of these awesome autistic voices advocating for things that we, that they need. And then there are people who are on their team like us. And we're like, yes, let's teach self-advocacy skills and whatnot. But without these really big institutional changes, it's going to be really hard, right? Because you can teach a kid to say, Hey, you look like you need to, or a kid to say, I, I need to go walk around before I come back and sit down. But if that teacher isn't okay with a kid doing that, then, you know, we're kind of at a standstill. Yeah. But I imagine like just listening to this, people can start thinking about ways to maybe like put these as accommodations in the IEP even, Um, because if it's an IEP, then they do have to like respect it, but maybe it's something. And then someone could even take this back to their schools and do like a little training, who knows? Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> there's definitely yeah. always things that we can do, you know, even though it feels maybe like a, an uphill battle for sure. For sure. Wow. That's really helpful. Thank you. And then Taylor said there, there, the examples are helpful to put in perspective. And I was really grateful because Jesse's like, I have some stories I want to share. And they, I told her, I'm like, that's the best way to illustrate this kind of stuff. So thanks Jesse for doing that. Yeah. So what role can SLPs, SLPAs play in addressing the sensory needs of their students? Yeah, so there are definitely things that we can do with our training. But I I say this because therapists will ask me all the time, you know, well, are we allowed to use sensory strategies? And the answer is yes, but just like anything that we do, um, we want to be moral and we want to be ethical, right? So we want to have some degree of understanding of what we're doing before we do it. Just like if you were to see a kid for feeding therapy, you would hope that this person has been trained in feeding, right? Um, but there's so many things we can do. And these are just some examples. Um, and there's one more bullet there, actually. Okay. But um, the first here is sensory strategies, which are things that we can just start integrating into our sessions or for a kid in their classroom to help them. And um, you guys may have heard me talk about this before, but one of my favorite things to teach therapists is that, you know, we have this optimal level of arousal that we are aiming for, which is going to be that regulated state, like we talked about, where this child will be able to access their upstairs brain and really be able to think and learn and use language. But for so many of our kids, they either come in at this heightened state of arousal, which is a state of dysregulation, or even at a lower state of arousal, which is also a state of dysregulation. So one of the easiest things that we can do is just to first identify where is this kid? And then from there, we can know what we have to do to help them to get in more of this optimal or more balanced state of arousal. So I was, um, I had one of my CFs and she had this boy that she'd been seeing for a little while. And she came to me and she said, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I can't seem to get him engaged. It's just like, he's sitting there and he's seems like he's paying attention, but I just feel like I'm not getting anywhere. So um, I go into her session and he's, he really is just sitting there. Like he would come off as the most compliant kid in the world, but it wasn't that he was the most compliant kid in the world is he was super under aroused. 
So I came in and then what we, a really easy rule of thumb is that if a kid has low arousal, you bring the energy. And if a kid has really high arousal, you try to be more of a calming source for that child. Um, so it's very, um, what's the word mom brain has just ruined me so badly. <laughs> you can appreciate that now. Um, counterintuitive. It's very counterintuitive because people tend to feed off of other people's energy. So when we have, you know, for example, you come into work and a coworker is sitting there just like moaning and groaning and doesn't want to work. All of a sudden, everyone is like that versus someone comes in and they're super excited and they're pumped for the day. And then they increase the arousal level or the energy level of everyone around them, you know, like at a sporting event, for example. So for this little boy, I came in and he was so low arousal just sitting there. So um, what we did was we sang the hello song, but does anyone know what spaghetti arms are? But it's basically where you hold the child's hands and you just wiggle them or shake them, which is one of my favorite things to do to increase a child's level of arousal. So we just sang hello to him and we just came at him with like so much energy and lots of movement. And he was a completely different kid. And, um, yeah, she, this therapist, she was a CF and now she's our clinic director, one of our directors at the clinic, but, um, she still talks about that kid because that's how much it clicked for her that day because she really got to see it in action. That's an awesome story. Do you mind giving a couple more examples of activities or maybe you were going to do this? Sorry if you were going to do oh, this, no, but no. There's so <laughs> just many things, um, yeah. but I think one of the things to do, and it's fairly easy, I think, to find information about figuring out kids' sensory preferences, but you really want to know, you know, what feels good to this child? What kind of sensory experiences are they seeking out and what are sensory experiences that they're avoiding, right? Because those are not the experiences that we want to bring into session. So for a child who maybe withdraws every time we touch them, then that's not something, you know, we don't want to force them into activities where there's just a lot of touch or maybe they don't like light touch, but they like that deep pressure touch. So my favorite thing to do is um, talk to parents because parents know their kids. They know what they like. They know what they don't like. But something else I like to do is I like to compare what parents say to what therapists say also, because sometimes sensory preferences can be different in different settings with different people, right? So sometimes we have kids who love being cuddled by their parents, but do not want to be cuddled by their therapist. And that's okay. And we need to respect that about our kids, um, trying to figure it out. So for example, one girl, I just came into a session last week to supervise. She loved singing, loved songs. So some of the simplest things we did to just keep her engaged and also regulated was we started singing during transitions. So um, like singing as we're walking to the therapy room, singing, and I'm just talking about making up songs singing as we're taking off our shoes, singing as we're putting things away. And that was really an easy way to, you know, keep her engaged, but also calm at the same time. Um, but in terms of, you know, knowing that high versus low arousal is super important because for that kid who I came in and gave him those spaghetti arms, 
you know, to really alert him, really wake him up. If that kid I came into was hopping around the session, like someone said here, um, she wanted examples for, for, um, mostly two-year-olds have lots of energy. I would do the opposite. I go into the session. I might even turn the lights down if the child is really sensitive to light. And I come and I try to have a very calming presence. I will talk slower. I will talk softer. I might even whisper and I will sing the hello song by giving them really slow, deep arm squeezes down their arms. You know, so it's as simple as just knowing the child's sensory preferences and then being able to integrate those into the session while also keeping in mind your goal of how can I bring this child into a more balanced state of regulation? That's great. Do you know of any good like um, preference assessments or websites that you would refer people to, to find more? Um, I know Hannon is one that we used a lot. Um, that's something because I have a sensory course that's coming out. That's something I've, I've actually been working on and making changes like every day because I feel like, um, SLPs can actually give the sensory profile, which is an assessment. It's just, I find it extremely hard to interpret. So I'm trying to figure out an easier way to do that. Um, but if you Google sensory preferences assessments, there's plenty. Okay. Free. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I actually found a really good resource on the Hannon. I think their blog recently, which was talking about like different activities that children like to do if they like to run or jump or climb, then here is like a related activity that you can do for jumping. It might be like, um, five little monkeys jumping on the bed or for running, it might be like red light, green light. And I thought that was a really cool resource. So I'm glad that you mentioned Hannon as well. Yeah, Thank you. That's awesome. Hannon has, has great stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, there are other plenty of other things we can do. Like here we have modifications of activities, routines, or the environment. So those are more environmental modifications that we can make. So in your therapy session, that could be as simple as turning the lights down. You know, a lot of us work in offices or maybe schools that we have these bright fluorescent lights, which have, there's so much research behind that showing that it causes people to get headaches and stress. So it even altered lighting can make a big difference. Um, we like to use bumpy seats for kids to sit on because it gives them extra input, but they also get to move around a little bit. Um, or you can buy stools that are, they're called like wobble stools. So they're not stable on the ground. Kids can wobble around in them to move a little bit more. Um, and even things like, I know this isn't always possible, but a lot of our kids are really sensitive to visual input and just being in a busy classroom automatically brings them more up to a higher level of arousal, which will be more dysregulating. So like that might even mean changing your method of like push in versus pull out for a child or helping the teacher to design a space in the classroom that is, um, you know, has less visual input. So using things like pastel, um, solid colors on the walls instead of bright colors and patterns, which is just how many schools are. Um, and, and, 
and places where they can go that are just a little bit even like darker and calmer. Um, and if you're in a therapy room, you know, having shelves up where you could see all of your toys versus if you could put up like a curtain so that you could just close off your shelf. If you don't have cabinets with doors that can make a really big difference. You know, I know here we have kids where it's really hard for us to have any toys at all in the room, (laughs) which is just not realistic. I think for a lot of us to be able to have to move things in and out of rooms, but just being able to like close things off with a curtain can make a really big difference or the number of people in the room, you know, um, makes another big difference. Such a good tip. I mean, it it makes sense though, because when your house is like a mess, I don't know if the same, it's the same for you, but if I have clutter everywhere, like I can't think straight and I can't get work done until I like go through it and put everything away. Do you feel the same? Oh yeah. No, they (laughs) like, I feel like that's research. They say that external clutter gives you internal clutter. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And then I feel, you know, for children that have this in a classroom. I mean, some classrooms are designed like so beautifully, but yeah, it, they definitely don't have that in mind. I think sometimes when they're designing the classrooms. And one of Um, the common differences we see, um, for autistic kids is in their auditory input. So a lot of kids are really hypersensitive to auditory input. So just having these really loud, um, classrooms with lots of unexpected noises and kids who are unpredictable and making unpredictable noises and doing unpredictable things is, is a lot in itself. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Samantha asked, can you please share the resource regarding the, um, if the child likes jumping five little monkeys? Yes. I will include that on the tassel page where you found this zoom link, um, as, uh, along with the other link that Jesse had shared earlier. That'll be the easiest, I think. And maybe I'll share it in a follow-up email as well. Yeah, so there are a couple other things we could do. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of, for instance, the alert program is something um, where it's basically teaching kids how to recognize when they're getting to a place where they're starting to feel dysregulated. Um, So there's the phrase, like, how does your engine run? And if it's running like really fast or really slow and then being able to identify what they can do to help themselves. Um, But, you know, the thing about that is that it is more of a self-regulation tool. And I don't know about you guys, but a lot of the kids I see, um, we're still in that co-regulation stage where they really need me or they need an adult to help them get to a regulated place. And um, didn't you talk to Danielle Kent? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's an amazing resource for that. But, um, you know, I think a lot of times we're expecting too much of kids at such a young age and we're expecting them to self-regulate when a lot of us can't even self-regulate, you know, um, Danielle gave a great example. She came in and trained my group and said, um, you know, if you had a really hard day, you're going to call your mom or you're going to call your significant other and you're going to vent and you're going to have that person help you regulate. And I was like, that's a great point. You know, we all need that. So, um, I try to be careful with how much I expect from kids in terms of self-regulation at a young age. Um, and then lastly, being able to, um, help kids communicate. So, 
teaching self-advocacy is really big. I know that's kind of, I feel like kind of a buzzword right now. A lot of people are talking about it because it's so important for kids to be able to self-advocate, but you know, that's our job is helping kids communicate that need when they have a need, being able to put it out there, being able to tell their teacher or whoever it is what they need at that moment, or at least be able to try to identify it so that someone can help them problem solve through it. Yeah, I saw a really good post, I think yesterday that was talking about non-compliance and how it's actually a form of self-advocacy and that we need to honor that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, Rachel Dorsey put out a goal writing course and that's one of the things she talks about is she always teaches kids how to dissent. You know, it's a very important part of um, what we do and respecting their boundaries. And just because kids may not be verbal doesn't mean that um, we get to decide what we're, what they're going to do with their bodies, you know? Um, so we need to teach that whether that's through AAC or, or verbal language gestures, whatever it might be. Yeah. And I love the example that you gave about co-regulation. I, when Danielle came, so if you guys aren't familiar, Danielle Ken had done a similar type of pod course, maybe like two months ago, um, basically around co-regulation. And I was shocked by the age at which it takes for people to actually develop um, self-regulation and it's in the teens, but like you even gave the example that she had shared that we still co-regulate even as adults. Like I constantly co-regulating with my husband. So yeah, it's really interesting. And it's definitely puts things into perspective. Yeah. And I do think I should say that um, I think understanding just the role in emotions and emotional regulation is a huge part of what we do. And is so important um, because a lot of the times what we see emotionally, emotional dysregulation will manifest in a physical way. You know, so a lot of the times the things we're seeing may not actually be something that's sensory based. It might be rooted in something emotional. So being able to differentiate that and really um, almost like put your whole plan of what you're trying to accomplish on the side to try to help this child get more to an emotionally regulated place. Yeah. Great point. So how can we target sensory regulation if we have limited access to therapy equipment? I mean, who here has a, like a totally equipped gym in the facility that they work in? I doubt very many. I mean, I know you do now, Jesse, right? You have a pretty cool gym I've seen in your videos. Uh, it's funny because when I was starting my practice, I was like, I have to have a gym. That's one of my requirements. If we've got to have two rooms and one of them has to be a gym. <laughs> um, but it's one of the most common questions I get is I don't have a gym. Can I do all of these things? Um, <laughs> tips for those of us who work in small, busy rooms. Um because I think that's a a really big misconception is that you need to have all of these fancy pieces of equipment in order to um, have more sensory based sessions with kids. When in fact, it's just, how can we, first of all, know the child's sensory preferences, consider the child's arousal. How can we choose activities in our session um, that go with those? And I think one of the biggest I don't know if I would say issues maybe um, is that 
people say, oh, well, this kid loves spinning. I'm going to spin him for all these activities. But what we're not thinking about is, well, what is that? Just because they like it doesn't mean that we should keep doing it over and over and over. Right. So spinning is one of the strongest types of sensory input that we can give to kids. And it will cause a child to become dysregulated. It's just a matter of time. Right. So just because a kid loves jumping, for example, doesn't mean that um, we should do every activity where they're jumping. We really need to work to watch their um, state of regulation and their arousal level to see, well, what is this jumping doing? Is it increasing their arousal level, making them more dysregulated, or is it decreasing um, their arousal level and making them more balanced? Right. So we need to know how that we can integrate different types of sensory input to accomplish either that alerting activity or that calming. So um, for example, with five little monkeys, even if you're in a small space, you can do that. And I don't know if you guys are allowed to pick your kids up. I know sometimes you're not, but whether the kid is jumping or you're picking them up and down, um, if a child really loves that jumping, you might sing five little monkeys jumping. And then when it's time for the monkey to fall off the bed, you might have them fall onto the ground or wherever or sit in their seat if you don't have the space to let them go mm -hmm. on the ground. And then you might sing the rest of the song, whispering really slowly um, and giving them deep squeezes because that's gonna be more calming for them. Right, so it might be like, um, fell off and bumped his head. Mama called the doctor and the doctor said. So you might just try playing with your own energy level so that you don't get that child even more dysregulated because now you're excited and he's excited and then you're jumping and you're talking louder and louder. Um, so yes, knowing what the child enjoys in terms of their sensory preferences, but also always thinking about their state of arousal. Um, so, I mean, I could, you want to think about like, what are the activities you're already doing? And then how could you start to integrate more sensory strategies into that? So if you have a hello song, like we do here, um, how we might do that hello song is going to depend on how the child comes in that day. If they're a high level of arousal, we're going to sing really calming. If they're low level of arousal, we're going to sing with a lot of energy and really try to alert them more. Um, and then if once you really know a child's sensory preferences, you can start to use more of those. Um, so for example, um, you know, some of us like deep pressure massages. Some of us like really light massages. Some of us do not like light touch because it's very alerting for us. Whereas some of us love it. So figuring out what that is and then starting to integrate that. Um, and um, I kind of touched on this earlier, but being able to integrate sensory activities into things that you're doing that are routines or transitions. So for kids who have really high level of energy, usually doing some proprioceptive activities where they're really getting those joints and muscles to contract is going to be more calming for them. So that might mean instead of you taking the toy or the box and putting it away after you're cleaning it up, letting the kid do that, you know, because heavy lifting is something that's generally pretty organizing and calming for kids. So having them do that in between 
activities. Um, that might even mean having them say, move around your room between activities or as part of an activity. Um, so one of like my favorite things to do, for example, working on prepositions is hiding, quote, hiding toys around the room. So I'm telling them where to hide them. And the child is going back and forth between like a chair or a hula hoop they're sitting in and wherever they're hiding it. Um, so you can have them like, oh, go run, 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 put it over there. Okay, run, run, run back. So it's, you know, the activities you're already doing, but trying to integrate more of the types of sensory input that the child enjoys. I love that. Did that answer your question, Esther? Did you want any more examples? Like I'm imagining like even dimming your own lights in a small room, right? Could be, you know, you've already explained that. Um, I yeah. love the modulating your voice. That was a great tip. Yeah, that's one of the easiest things to do. Um, easy, but hard because it's very unnatural. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, you got another question from Marissa. She said, what are some of your favorite songs to pair with sensory activities? <gasps> Any song, but um, <laughs> for the age of the kids I work with, generally, I would say my top are Five Little Monkeys, um, Row Your Boat. You know, we put, can put kids on our lap here. So being able to put them on our lap and row um, and doing the verse, like row your boat, bounce your boat, rock your boat. Um, but I mean, like just a couple days ago, we were doing wheels on the bus with a little girl, um, and making it more of a sensory activity. Like when we were doing, um, the horn on the bus goes beep, beep. And I was tickling her tummy every time we said, beep, you know, and sometimes just making those really simple changes can make a really big difference. I love that. Yeah. Any song. And I like, you said you even made up songs for some transitions, right? Yeah. Do you song. care to share? <laughs> I mean, we'll do like a lot of like walking, walking. I feel like that's a standard song we all know, or just like, uh, we're taking off our shoes. We're taking off our shoes. Hi, Hilda Mario. We're taking off our shoes. I, I love do that. a lot of like bouncing songs. Um, and Bring Around the Rosie has to be one of my favorites for moving around too. Great. Oh, that was really good. All right. So we have five minutes left. I can't believe it. That was the last question, right? Um, I want to, or that was the last question for you. Now I want to open up the floor for any other questions that maybe came up for somebody um, and they didn't post it in the, the general chat. Thanks for your question, Marissa. So we'll give you guys about a minute or so. Yeah, I feel, like, else. I feel like it always feels really overwhelming um, hearing so much of this information and just being able to put it into practice, you know, cause it really does take time and you have to sit down and you really need to think about each of your kids because everyone is so different. And it's just not one of those things where you're going to have one, um, activity that's necessarily going to work for every kid. Yeah. So we got a couple of questions that came through. Um, Rachel had asked, what are some clues that a student is dysregulated? Um, that, yeah, great question. Broad question, because it's hard to know 
without knowing the child's baseline, kind of where they are. But um, basically, anytime you feel that the child is not, I guess you could say performing, for lack of a better word, at the level at which you know that they are capable of. Um, so, you know, clues that a child might be regulated might be that they're relatively still with their body um, and engaged with you and um, able to access their language if they have language that they use um, would be the keys really to look for. But I would say generally if we're, we're um, working with kids who are just kind of like in constant motion or um, I would say that's probably the top one I hear, constant motion or, or difficulty engaging, then that's usually a sign that there is some sort of dysregulation going on. Okay. And then Tara had asked, what are some resources for sensory activity ideas? Um, I have so much on my Instagram. If you guys want to find me, um, that's essentially why I started to create this course is because for me, it was really hard to find, um, resources because like I said, it's just not like this type of thing where you could just pull something up with one kid and then use it for everyone. You really have to know individual needs. Um, so if you find me on Instagram, it's jessieginsberg.slp. Um, I have a lot of like reels that I've put up with really simple therapy ideas. Um, and yeah, I've got a free four day training I'm doing. Is it next week? July it is. through 29th. Oh God, here it comes. Um, so if you want to learn more, then I'm hoping to be able to share some really good bits of information in a very clear and concise, actionable way. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm hoping to attend that one. And we're going to share her Instagram handle at the end of this. So um, if you didn't get the chance to write it down, we'll definitely show it to you. And then Tori had asked tips for regulating a child who is hypersensitive to visual input, even looking under objects, et cetera. Yeah, I think um, if you are in a classroom, I would say minimizing the number of anything, people, colors, toys that are in the classroom. Um, even having the child wear sunglasses can really help to decrease the amount of visual input. I mean, that's definitely something parents could do at home is either sunglasses or hat, at least when they're outside. Um, but I would say in terms of in the classroom, not that you always have the choice of this, but in general, pastel solid colors tend to be more calming than really bright colors and bright patterns. So I would probably avoid using lots of toys with like flashing lights and things like that if the child was really sensitive to that visual stimulation. Okay. And then Rachel had asked, if a child is stimming, does that mean they are trying to self-regulate? Can be. I don't think there's a cookie cutter answer for that, but there's a lot of, I've recently especially gotten to hear a lot of autistic adults present and talk about sensory processing, which has been really interesting. And I think um, sometimes stimming can be because a person is trying to regulate and sometimes it can just be because it just feels good. And it's satisfying. Cool. Um, Rebecca had asked, what are some of your book recommendations on neurodiversity? Oh, I can send you some maybe, and you could post them. Yeah, that would be great. 
I'm going to make a note of that. Reading. So (laughs) any on the top of your head, just like one. I think uh, Mona De La Hook, which is beyond behaviors is amazing. Okay. Um, I wrote that one down. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Taylor has said, I have a kid with ODD disorder or oppositional defiant disorder. Would these strategies still work? You know, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I have the answer to that. I don't have any kids with that diagnosis. Um, so I, I think, um, between sensory, but also really understanding emotional regulation would make a really big difference. Yeah. And that's to Esther also wrote tips for calming a child who's constantly humming, making, um, buzzing noises. Um, actually did a webinar on this, which is, you know, really understanding the behaviors you see in more of a whole picture kind of view, because oftentimes it's the iceberg analogy where we might see what's at the very tip of the iceberg, but there's so much under the iceberg. And the thing is that we might see a child humming or making noises, but we don't know what's going on down here. So, um, that's, it's a loaded question almost, I guess you could say, because we don't know if it's more of an emotional dysregulation or if it's more of a, something that they're doing for their sensory needs. But I would say, um, you really need to like dig into that. What's under the iceberg, what's happening, um, with the child's emotional regulation. Um, and then what are the child's sensory preferences? Because that might give you more clues about why the child is doing that as well. Okay. All right. I think that was all of the questions. And if you guys have any follow-up questions, maybe you didn't think about it. You can always shoot me an email and I will relay it to Jesse and we'll try to get back to you. So thank you guys so much for coming tonight. And Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very, very, very busy mom schedule and boss schedule to um, be here for us tonight and share all of your awesome tips. Thank you very much. All right, guys, have a wonderful night. Thanks so much, everyone, for coming. Guess what? This episode is worth 0.1 ASHA CEUs. However, listening to this pod course does not automatically guarantee ASHA CEUs or a certificate. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs for this pod course, please visit tasseltogether.com to create an account, pick a membership level, and access the course materials. Tassel will automatically submit your course participation to ASHA once the course requirements are met. Remember to check the course details section under each course on the website for completion deadlines. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this pod course.